Turn with me to John chapter 10. If you don't have your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we can put one in your hand. But John chapter 10, we'll be picking up with where we left off in our study from last week. So this is part two, if you will, of the 10th chapter, and we'll finish the 10th chapter uh, this morning. We read through verse 21 a week ago, and so we'll pick it up with verse 22. We'll actually finish out the whole chapter, but I'm going to read just 22 through 30 to start off um, this morning. John chapter 10, starting verse 22. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, the wor- um, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I have said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for the help of your Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I pray for the anointing of your Spirit. I pray you lay your hand upon me and give me your strength. I could never do justice to your word. But Lord, I pray that... uh, You would take the preparation and use it for your glory, Lord, that you would speak to hearts that all of us, Lord, would be transformed in mind and in spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd remove me once again from the equation that each of us might hear from Jesus. And Lord, we may draw near to you, those online, those that are here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. People from everywhere and all walks of life want security. And they want to be able to trust that what they've invested in will deliver on the promise. You ever bought something that didn't deliver on the promise? More is it, today I think they create things to break faster. It's a consumer culture, you know, like it used to you, uh, most of us, back in the old days, your refrigerator would outlive the whole family, right? Now, now forget about it. You know, it's like you're back there three years later and the warranty just a week after, something like that. Um, by the way, someone gave me in this church, and they knew, uh, they knew who they are, gave me for Christmas a subscription to Consumer Reports. Literally, one of you did that, and you know who you are, and I love you for it, because I, I like to read that stuff. You know, I'm not, I'm not buying the stuff. I like to know if I ever was going to buy that, this is the one to buy. This is the one not to buy. But you know, I've even been burned by that. How about you? It, 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 but this said it was the best model. We generally investigate anything we think can deliver security. We want to know, is it, is it ring? Is it simply safe? And we examine whether, and not just security products, but we examine whether a product or a solution or a service or a claim, we examine, can it be trusted? It's hard to find trustworthy people more and more these days. But the same line of thinking applies to hundreds of things in life. From small things to life-changing decisions. Maybe a young couple here that's buying their first house. Can we trust the inspection report? Because sometimes they've not been accurate. 
Now, aside from the fact that the things in this world, even with the best of our due diligence, unexpectedly fail again and again, or to be as secure or as trustworthy as we had hoped or we thought, the state of our soul, what we're trusting in for eternity, is of far greater importance, infinitely greater importance is your soul than anything you'll ever purchase or need in this lifetime. And that when it comes to our soul, no one can afford to be wrong. Amen? Amen. You can't afford to be wrong with your soul. You can afford to be wrong with many other things. You can book a vacation and say, I should have bought insurance and didn't buy insurance, get the flu, and lose $2,000, and you can survive that in your, this lifetime. You'll be mad about it. You'll be frustrated about it. You'll be bummed about it. But you can survive that. Amen? Amen. Amen. You, you can still live on with that. But we can't afford to be wrong about the soul. And because of spiritual blindness, millions, in fact, billions have given very little thought to the security of their soul. Or they have completely put their hope in a misplaced hope. Other religions, other constructs in this world. Jesus came to this fallen world to the descendants of Abraham, which we looked at last week as the sheepfold of Israel. He came to Galilee. He came to Judah. Galilee's in the north. Judah's in the south. He came to Jews and Gentiles alike. He went to non-Jewish areas. And when you've read your Bibles, uh, whether you realize non-Jewish areas would include places like Samaria, Decapolis, Tyre, Sidon. He came numerous times to Jerusalem, the holy city of Zion that we just read about. Salvation will come from Zion. He came to Zion and to the temple he came to those that were willing and desiring to listen. He came to those that had no interest whatsoever in listening. Look, I don't want to hear it. I've got my own life. I'm not even religious. You ever meet people like that? Yep. He also came to those that listened out of a desire to trap him and condemn him. But in his three-year ministry of teaching and preaching, it was to illuminate and I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list of his ministry, it's not. But this gives you a really good core of why Jesus came. I could put scripture verses to match everything up here. I, uh, but number one, Jesus, his coming is to let everyone know that everyone is a sinner and born in sin. Not just that you're a sinner because you did a sin, Born in sin. As David said, I was conceived in unrighteousness. Number two, that everyone needs to turn and repent from their sin. You know, no person, those of you watching online, those of us here, none of us can just stop sinning. We can only turn to Christ who can help us to stop sinning. You can't, there's nothing good in you say, I'll just stop sinning. No, you need God's help. So we have to turn and repent to turn to him. Everyone needs a Savior to turn to for now the covering. Not just that our sins are confessed, but we need the blood to cover those sins. And then lastly, Jesus alone is that Savior that everyone needs. We know we need a Savior, but Jesus is. He is the way to the Father. He's the door. And along with these four truths, he exposed the danger 
of ignoring what he said. And the danger of following other voices. You know the voice that leads us the wrong way more than any other, others? Our own internal voice. I know it's a Disney thing. Just follow your heart. Right? But it's not true. Your heart's deceitfully wicked in its natural state. Our inner voice is not the one to follow. The world's values, we don't want to follow that voice. The world's religions, don't want to follow that voice. The world's religious leaders, don't want to follow that voice. The world's political leaders, definitely don't want to follow that voice. But to those that heard, those that understand, uh, those that believed his voice, with the response of faith and obedience. It's not just enough to hear the truth. You have to respond to the truth. Amen? Amen? With faith and obedience. Say, Lord, I believe in you. He became their shepherd. He be, he's become our shepherd. They became his sheep. We became his sheep. For this lifetime and for all of eternity. You know, by the way, it's kind of a negative thing right now in this country, uh, I see it all on social media. I definitely see it on Twitter a lot that uh, calling people, you're a bunch of sheep. It's a very negative term. It's not a negative term in Jesus. To be his sheep is a very positive thing. Now, there, and it's interesting because the, the connotation, even in our society, is that there's some people leading sheep right over a cliff, but Jesus leads us right into heaven. Amen. Right into green pastures. If you're taking notes, you see the title again this morning. The shepherd knows his sheep. He knows his sheep. We saw last week that Jesus continued his patient dialogue with the Pharisees and those that were looking on by giving a parable of sheep, of a sheepfold, of strangers, of a gate or a door, of a gatekeeper, and lastly, of a shepherd. And none of it made any sense when he told that story. They all understood it in the context of their life and times. Uh, yeah, we understand those pieces and parts. We live that world, but we don't know how that applies to you, and we don't know how it applies to us. It didn't make any sense to his hearers. More accurately, his resistant accusers. So he explained. He explained to them. He not just told the parable, he interpreted the parable. He said that he was the door. Not just to the sheepfold and the house of Israel, but the door that all the sheep, all Jews, all Gentiles had to enter that door. That he was the good shepherd. The one, the one that in love would lay down his life. And we knew that meant laying down eventually on the cross, laying down his life for the sheep. And that he would lead them and bring them into pasture. Unlike the worthless shepherds, the Pharisees themselves, he cared for the sheep. He promised to save them, to lead them, to shepherd them, and ultimately, ultimately lay down his life for his sheep. He also said he had other sheep. Guess what? I'm some of the other sheep. You're some of the other sheep. These were sheep in the future. Sheep outside of Israel that he would bring into one flock, him being the one shepherd. What was their response to this? He explained it all. Their response, 
division. Some said, he has a demon. Some said, no, I think he's divine. I think he's from heaven. If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing we'll look at this morning, his protected sheep. You know, the world is a whole, as a whole is a bunch of sheep. As we talked about last week, all sheep are following somebody. The question is who they're following. Everyone is a sheep. The question is, are you following Jesus? Are you part of his flock or not? Now, there's a gap between verse 21 and 22. Go back to verse 21. I didn't read it here this morning, but remember it says, uh, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And that's where we finished last week. Then there's a gap. When you get to verse 22, it says, now it was the feast of dedication. There's a gap between verse 21 and verse 22, and it's also a time gap. There's a time gap here. It's now the Feast of Dedication. It, we've moved forward. It's the winter season. Do you guys all remember what the Feast of Dedication is? It's right near Christmas. It's the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah, also known as the Festival of Lights. Uh, Jewish homes around the world will call it the Festival of Lights. They'll call it Feast of Dedication. They'll call it Hanukkah. It's all the same it's all the same festival or feast. As I've mentioned in the past, this was not one of the required feasts that were given to Moses under the law. But Jesus is presumably celebrating and commemorating this festival with his arrival at the temple. So we believe he's going in to celebrate the feast of dedication with good reason, I believe. This feast commemorated and it celebrated the cleansing and the rededication of the temple that took place in 164 B.C. after it had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes for three years prior. Antiochus Epiphanes was the ruler of the Greek empire. The four, it, was, it was divided into four pieces, four parts after Alexander the Great had died. It was separated into four pieces. And you had the Syrian part of it that was led by Antioch Epiphanes. So he was the Syrian leader of the fourth, uh, you know, the four sections of the Greco or the Greek Empire. And William Barclay cites, speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was an evil, evil man, uh, he would not look at Vladimir Putin as any big deal. He'd look at him like, he's not mean enough. That's the way he would look at it. And by the way, many old, many of the ancient rulers were bloodthirsty and cruel to an extent that we've not seen in our lifetime. We could see, but because mankind still has the capacity, Antiochus Epiphanes really was that way. So was Nero, right? Many others in history. But he, he stole millions of gold and silver from the, uh, from the temple treasury. This is all from William Barclay's uh, uh, notes here. He said that anyone that possessed a copy of the law was punishable by death. Anyone found with a copy of the Tanakh, punishable by death. He ruled that circumcising children was punishable by death. The Jews could no longer circumcise their children under his rule. He proclaimed that mothers that did choose to circumcise their children were to be crucified and their children hung around their necks. Any mother found circumcising their child. 
Under his rule, the temple was turned into a house of prostitution, just like it was in the Greek temples. Antiochus took the great offer where the burnt offering was to be given, and he turned it into an altar to the god of Zeus. He sacrificed pigs on the great altar, even went into the Holy of Holies. He killed 80,000 Jewish people, slaughtered 80,000 Jewish people, an equal number were sold into slavery. He was truly and without question a forerunner to the Antichrist. We believe that Daniel prophesied about him in the book of Daniel, specifically about Antiochus, and also Antiochus as a type of a future man to come who would be worse than Antiochus, which would be the Antichrist himself. Interesting, his name Antiochus kind of sounds like Antichrist, right? Uh, not coincident. God lines all the pieces up. Evil man, vile. But once the Mac- you've heard of the Maccabean Revolt, there was the Maccabean Revolt, and so the Maccabees were able to retake Jerusalem, they retook the temple, and they were able to get a hold of the temple and cleanse it and purify it. And when they did, they found one tiny, small cruise of olive oil that still had the seal from the original high priest who had sealed it. They should have had many vials, but they had all been destroyed. But there was one left. One. What a chance that God had one left. And it had the seal of the high priest on it. They broke the seal after they had cleansed and purified the temple. And with that little bit of oil that should have been enough to last a day, they lit the menorah, which you have the center branch, and you have the branches on both sides. And it should have only lasted about a day, but it miraculously lasted eight days. Days, And that's why, in addition to that, our menorah over here looks like the same one that was given to Moses. But then you have the, the, the Hanukkah menorah, which ends up as a nine-branch menorah with one branch in the center and four on both sides. And the four on both sides is the eight that represents that the oil lit for eight consecutive days. And thus became, that miracle became the celebration of the Festival of Lights known as Hanukkah, known as the Feast of Dedication. Dedication because they were rededicating the temple who Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple, violated the temple, and they were rededicating it back to God as clean and pure. And it's interesting to me and noteworthy that Jesus comes along 2,000 years ago and two times he did what? Cleansed the entire temple kicked out of the temple money changers that had turned the temple not into pagan worship but into a marketable business. And God does not want his church to be a business, folks. He doesn't want it to be pagan worship, but he also doesn't want this church or any other church to be a business, to be a market. And then we know that he hates the pagan worship and, and that had to be cleansed, but uh, the, when Jesus comes in the temple marketplace is allowed by the high priest and allowed by the religious leaders. They're the ones that allowed it to become a marketplace and to take advantage of widows and sell ten times what a dove was worth. 
underscoring the, the fact that Jesus, remember he came in the first time. He came and he cleared the temple two times. First time is the very beginning of his ministry. The second time was the last week of his ministry, the very week he went to the cross. Both times he cleansed it at the beginning and he cleansed it at the end. In other words, he's saying it needs to be cleansed, alpha and omega, beginning and end. And he comes in the temple and he looks around and he just observes. And next thing you know, he fashions a whip and clears everything out. Underscoring that God will no longer, he'll no more accept vain worship as he will pagan vile worship. He doesn't want either. He doesn't want you and I to be just kind of religious in nature, but it not really be a heart change. And although the Pharisees, they would consider Antiochus a vile, evil devil of a man, and they would be correct. But they didn't even realize, the Pharisees didn't realize they were antichrists themselves. They were against the Son of God, just as Antiochus Epiphanes was. They did not realize, you know, a lot of people don't realize they're in the same camp as the Antichrist and don't even know it. Remember Jesus said to them, you're, up to, you're the father of the devil. They couldn't make the leap of like, how can we be reading our scrolls constantly and be like our father the devil? They were in blindness. So as Jesus has again returned here to the temple, and he's returned here to the Jews, the Jewish leaders there. Anytime in your Bible it says, um, it says now the Jews surrounded him, it's not talking about the Jewish people. The Jews is a term for the leaders the rulers, the religious leaders of the day. And the fact that they were the Jewish leaders as opposed to the Roman leaders like Pilate and Herod and people like that. So the Jews was always a reference to the religious leaders. And they ask him, uh, they say to him, how long do you keep us in verse 24? How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They're wanting him to say with witnesses that he is the anointed one. He is the one to sit on the throne of Israel. He is the Messiah, the way they understood Messiah. There, there's the Messiah that we now know was coming for the atonement of sins. When they heard Messiah, they heard president, king, emperor, David's throne. That's what they heard. They did not hear Lamb of God, when they heard Messiah. They did not hear suffering servant when they heard... They did not hear Isaiah 53 when they heard Messiah. They thought King David when they heard Messiah. And so Jesus, uh, he didn't, when he comes in, he's not, he does not appear to be teaching. He appears to just be walking through the temple. He's not teaching. He's not preaching at that time. They stop him. They kind of surround him. They accost him and... They want Jesus to say that he's the king of the Jews. When he said Messiah, if he were to say Messiah, they would take that, everyone take, would take that in the connotation there as the king of the Jews. Now Jesus rarely referred to himself in Jewish settings as the Christ, as the Messiah, as that title, as that title Messiah. He rarely did that in front of Jewish audiences. Why? Uh, because again, the term had a political ruler component mindset for the people, and he knew that, so he would talk in these other parables to them. And his name was Jesus. Why? Because the angel said his name will mean he, he will save his people from their what? Sins. Not from Rome. Not from Caesar. In verse 25, Jesus says, uh, they, they ask him, when will you tell us plainly? He says, I've told you, but you do not, here's the word, believe. Believe. You don't believe. 
They don't believe, and so far they will not believe. What has Jesus already told them? He's told them, let me give you a few. He's told them he's the bread of life. No one else has ever called themselves the bread of life. You've never met a human being in your life that says, I am the bread of life. <laughs> Who talks like that unless you are the bread of life? He's told them he's the bread of life. He's told them he's the light of the world. He's told them he's the door. He's told them he's the good shepherd. He's told them that God is his father and that he's come down from heaven. And he said about a dozen other emphatic empirical statements such as this one. Before Abraham was, I am. No one else says that. No one else could even think that thought, much less say it. That only Jesus had come from God. That only Jesus was the Son of God. And of course, only Jesus was and is God. In human flesh in their presence. And he didn't just claim his divinity. Look at the middle of verse 25. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. He goes, you didn't believe what I said. You didn't believe who I am. You don't even believe the works that I've done. He performed the supernatural among them in the form of miracles that only God could do. They knew, they knew they had seen with their very own eyes. They didn't just hear about it or read about it like we have. They saw with their very own eyes that he healed a man of 38 years of lameness there at the pool of Bethesda. They saw him heal a man who had been blind from birth. Remember, they interrogated his parents and the whole family. They knew that. And even the man who was blind, he marveled. He said, since the beginning of the earth, no one has ever seen things like this. Of course, Jesus did miracles that were amazing. Now, remember, they believed in the other prophets of God. God had allowed mighty miracles to be done through Moses, right? Mighty miracles to be done through Elijah. Mighty miracles to be done through Elisha. Miracles that God had done through the prophets. They believed that God had done all those things. They believed that God had done all those things through the prophets. And those men were all sinners just like us. And God had done that. Surely Jesus, who has no sin, they saw with their own eyes the same miracles and even greater miracles because Jesus healed thousands of people. Multitudes, the Bible says. Plural. On more than one occasion. All this was well known at that time. And yet he says twice, you don't believe. You don't believe. You've seen it yourself. You don't even believe the works themselves. I've said before, and I'll say it again, I, I would love... Now, first of all, the greatest work Jesus ever does is the saving of a soul. But when he does miracles, the miracles themselves are things that we can visibly see. Like, if he feeds 5,000 people, you would know, all right, this lunch doesn't feed 5,000 people. The math don't work, right? But then if you see, see him heal people, uh, I, if I had my preference, if I could see Jesus do any miracles, I would want to see him heal thousands of people. I would love, in our life, if he, if he would have come in 2022, and I said, Jesus is visiting Chippenham Hospital today, and I'm going to get to go watch. And room after room, he says, you're out, you're out, you're out, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. People just streaming out of the hospital, fully healed. Would that be amazing? I mean, he has that kind of power. They saw things like this. And instead of rejoicing about it, they hated him for it. 
But he said, you don't believe. Understand, brother and sister, nothing can happen until one believes. Nothing at the soul level can happen until one believes. These Pharisees and these leaders, um, he goes on to say, but you do not believe in verse 26. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep, verse 27, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The Pharisees are not and cannot be his sheep. Sadly, they don't want to be his sheep. And I've met people, and so have you, that have said, look, I don't want your religion. I don't want your God. I don't want any of this stuff. I don't need a crutch. I'm fine just the way I am. And if I die this way and I'm wrong, then so be it. But I don't want any religion. don't want your Jesus the Pharisees, they still wanted to be religious. Remember, they thought of themselves as Moses, Abraham, and them were all tight. Right? They thought they were of the same mindset. They were religious. They just did not want Jesus, nor did they believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, therefore, you're not my sheep. But his sheep, they're his sheep because he first sought them. If you're Jesus' sheep, if you say, I am definitely one of his little lambs, if you are one of Jesus' little lambs and you're one of his sheep, you're his sheep because he first found you and then you responded by saying, yes, I believe in you. Will you please take me as I am, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That you responded to him calling you by name. But we had to turn, right? We had to turn and face him and say, Lord, have mercy upon us. We have to choose to believe. And now, all of Jesus' sheep, because they have believed, they're the opposite of not believing, which the Pharisees, because they have believed, they now hear the voice of Jesus. And they follow him. Your, your co-workers at work think you're weird when you say, yeah, the Lord put it on my heart. What does that mean, the Lord put it on your heart? What in the world does that mean? That's, a, that's not even a tangible thing. The Lord put it on my heart. How do you know it was the Lord? How do you know it was something you ate? Right? Because we have the Holy Spirit, right? And we know that the Holy Spirit never defies the Word. It always confirms the Word. It always speaks to us by the Word. If you get something that you think is from the Holy Spirit that's not from the Word, of, that's opposite of the Word of God, it's not from the Holy Spirit. It may be something you ate. Or worse... But it's not from the Lord. But his sheep hear his voice and they hear the one who saved them. What a blessing it is, brother and sister, what a blessing it is to hear and follow the one who saved our soul from sin, which we could never stop. And even though, by the way, after you're saved, it's not that we don't sin anymore, but the longer you're saved, you will sin a lot less. Right? And you will be bothered by a sin and you'll be more likely to bring it to the altar faster and you won't marinate in sin anymore. But he saved us from sin. He saved us from the penalty of sin which is death and then the second death, hell and the lake of fire. He saved us from those things and what a blessing it is to follow one who's not just done something nice for us He's rescued us for all eternity. Amen? This is a, I mean, God wants us to understand so great a salvation that we have received. Uh, how could we do anything but follow him? And because he calls us his sheep, 
And he is our shepherd. He promises, and this is a great thing for us to know, we live in very turbulent times. We live in times where our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, and I personally know people have been communicating, I, they were watching, you know, like, Ukraine's Got Talent, literally, I'm not, the, the actual show, Ukraine's Got Talent, they were watching it like six months ago in the same carefree way that you would be watching something tonight. But now, they need their shepherd's voice. Not 10 years from now. They need it now. Amen? They need it right now. And because he calls us his sheep as our shepherd, he promises to provide for us just like a shepherd does for helpless sheep when wolves are coming and lions are coming. We talked about that. That is the Satan himself who wants to destroy. But how wise it is to follow the only one. How wise it is. Everything else would be foolish. Following Jesus is wise. Any other decision is foolish. But how wise it is to, to follow the one who has saved us. And as our creator, and this is really good news for all of us, as our creator, he knows every single thing about us, which is kind of sobering that God knows everything about us. Because there are things about you that no one in this room knows about you but God. That you'll never tell. They'll go to your grave. But then there's things about you that you don't even know about you. The older I get, the less I... Lord, there's a lot I don't know about me. Right? The, the older you get, you realize that God has just barely scratched the surface of showing us who He is and who we are, but He's constantly conforming us in the image of Jesus because He knows everything about us. He knows what's going to transform us, even things that we would say, Lord, this is going to kill me. He'll know this is going to conform you, not kill you. And He knows us trillions of times more than we know ourselves. And that's where, as a shepherd, He can protect us from ourselves. The number one person to protect ourselves from is ourself. Not outside forces. Because we still have a sin nature. Until we get into heaven, then that'll be gone. But once we're His sheep, we hear Him primarily. And that's why I stress, you've got to stay in the Word of God. Not just on Sunday, but you need to be reading daily. The pasture of his word. He leads us in, in, in those pastures. And we hear primarily through the scriptures the voice of God that we hear in the word of God. And when we are hearing the word of God, we really can know the Lord put this on my heart. Or the Lord is leading. Or the Lord is uh, in my prayer. I just sense that God definitely wants me to not do this, but do this. And you forks the road and they're there. But we listen to him no matter what. We listen to the word of God above everything else. No matter what anyone else says. I love this quote from R.A. Torrey. He said, the truly wise man is he who believes the Bible against the opinions of any man. If the Bible says one thing and anybody else, and I would say everyone else, says another, the wise man will decide this book is the word of him who cannot lie. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I've anchored my life on the words of Jesus. I'm hearing his voice through John 10, and right now I just finished the book of Isaiah in my personal study. I'm always hearing his voice in his word, and then when I hear his voice in his word, and I listen to other pastors and teachers that are preaching his word, I'm hearing it there, and I'm, I'm praying, I'm praying his word, I'm hearing his voice through his word. He's given us a permanent presentation of his voice in his word. That still speaks to us. And obviously he speaks to us with the Holy Spirit as well. But his sheep. His sheep. And if you're his sheep. His sheep back then. They rejected the Pharisees. The Pharisees. 
If, remember the blind man? If he would have acquiesced to them, he could have got to stay in the temple. But he would not receive their witness. He received Jesus' witness, and he got booted out of the temple, right? But it's better to be booted out of the temple and hear the voice of Jesus than to be in the temple and not hear the voice of Jesus. Amen? So, his sheep rejected the Pharisees. They rejected the culture. They reject the masses. And you and I have to reject the culture and the masses and the everybody else is doing it, so I think I should too, mentality. Verse 28. He says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. It's not just the daily leading of Jesus, but his sheep know they know they have a reward more than all the money in the world. That's how my pastor friend's able to go there. He's like, if I don't make it back, I'll be in heaven. Jesus gives us eternal life. He says they'll never perish. Uh, yes, our body will perish, but not our soul. If your soul is secure, your soul will one second be breathing on this earth, and the next, your soul is in the presence of Jesus. And everyone that you know that is saved, it's with Christ, they would never trade places and come back here. Ever! Amen. Would ne they never want to come back here. They're in the presence of perfection of the holiness of God, and he promises <coughs> eternal life. He's the only one that can make that promise. I mentioned um, one other time, but bears uh, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, which uh, I believe he's still the world's richest man. Um, uh, he recently invested three billion dollars in a Silicon Valley startup called Alto Labs, Alto Labs, uh, a startup that express goal is to search for immortality. This was announced in January that he had $3 billion in Alto Labs to search for immortality. This is just like the Spanish conquistadors that were looking for the fountain of youth. All Jeff Bezos needs to do is open a Bible and read the third chapter of John. And his search for immortality, he can actually funnel the three billion to Ukraine. Amen. And stop searching for immortality. And use it for something good. I'm not saying he doesn't do anything good. I'm just saying that's a waste. Because the third chapter of John will tell him there's the search for immortality. It's at the feet of Jesus. And the Spanish conquistadors, they had Bibles too. And yet they didn't believe their Bibles. They were searching for the fountain of life. But this is the world we live in. People will believe anything but Jesus. Jesus is the door to life. He even said in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Explorers can go search the world. Billionaires can search cells or the cosmos, whichever one they want to search, or the atomic level. And religious people, like the Pharisees, could even search the scriptures. But any search that doesn't come to Jesus is a fail. Any search that doesn't end at the feet of Jesus is a fail. Verse 28, again, he says, um, to those that believe, nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Nobody can pluck. Aren't you glad that no one can take you out of the hands of Jesus? Nobody can take you out of the hands of Jesus. No one can take away eternal life from you. They can take your life. They can take your savings. They can take your freedom. They can lock us all up and throw away the key. But they cannot take away salvation. Amen? Amen. Isn't that great to know? Yes. 
good news for me, even if it isn't for you. I know it's good news for me because uh, I may someday eat those words. I understand where this world is headed. Verse 29 says, My Father has given them them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them. Uh, And he goes on to say in verse 30, I and my Father are one. In other words, the Father and Son together have ensured the present and the eternal protection of Jesus' sheep. You got, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, uh, I have a great insurance policy. It's another thing to say, I've got God in my corner, mm-hmm. holding my salvation, holding me. Uh, Pastor Chuck used to say, you know, uh, Jesus will never cast you out. Now, you can dive out if you prefer. I don't know why anyone would want to leave the fold. Uh, and I don't, again, I'm not here to get into can you lose your salvation? Were you never saved in the first place? All of those, those debates have raged for 2,000 years. The main thing Jesus says, abide in me as I abide in you. He's like, if you stay, you're never going to be snatched out. Isn't that great to know? As long as you say, Lord, I'm going to cling for dear life. So don't worry about it. I've got you way tighter than you can cling. That's the way we can look at it. We've got to finish up these last few verses. If you're taking notes, pick it up with me in verse 31. Then the Jews, t- <laughs> how did they respond to all this? Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Not moved an inch. Jesus answered them, many good works have I shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you now stone me? The Jews answered him and saying, verse 33, uh, for a good work we do not stone you. But for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, lowercase g, little g-o-d-s, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do the works of my Father, um, do not believe me. Uh, sorry, sorry. Verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in, am I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in his name. This statement back in verse 30, I and my Father are one. Jesus saying we are in perfect unity. Henry Alford says of Jesus and the Father being one, one in essence, primarily, but therefore also in working and in power and will. Jesus was one with the power of God, the will of God, the work of God, because he is in fact was God. Perfect unity. Now Jesus was also the perfect reflection of the Father. No one could look at God in his glorified state and live, but if he sent his Son in human flesh and in perfect unity, the perfect perfect reflection of God. Jesus said, said in another place, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he and the Father are one. To that statement, that was when they once again were immediately enraged and they were ready to stone Jesus. As soon as he said, me and my father are one, they said, that's it. We don't need to wait any longer. We don't need a court proceeding. Just pick up stones and hammer him to death. 
That is satanic, and they didn't even know it. Amen? Amen. It's satanic to want to kill God. And when people use God's name as a swear word, they don't know that's a satanic thing. They don't know that they are just shaking their fist at God with a blasphemous tongue when people say the things that they say. But Jesus answers them. He doesn't condemn them here. He goes ahead and answers them. He says, many good works I've shown you. For which of these works do you stone me? Many good works I've shown you. Why, why are you trying to stone me? Is it because I healed a man that was lame for 38 years? Healed another man that uh, been blind from life? It's because I healed people that were paralyzed? Is it because I've healed people that haven't had a sound mind? I cast demons out of them? For which work? Jesus has consistently and persistently pointed to the Father, his being from the Father, and that the works of his life demonstrated he was from, from the Father. Back in John chapter 5, verse 36, he said, The works the Father has given me to finish, the very works I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Nobody could do these works. Nobody. And they say, well, no, it's not any of the works you did. It's not the people you heal. It's not the people you help. We're okay with all that, although we never were happy about it. We're still okay with it, right? And they never rejoiced about it. He says, it's not those things. They don't even acknowledge his wonderful, life-changing miracles. There's never joy. They never say, let's throw a party because this guy who's been lame for 38 years. No, they're like, he did it on the Sabbath. Who told you he could do this? They were indignant that he would heal on the Sabbath. They never responded in any way joyful about it. But they say, this is the last straw. If you, being a man, make yourself God, that's blasphemy. Therefore, you need to die. You must die. Stoning was the death of the Jews. Crucifixion was the death, the capital punishment death of the Romans. Now, Jesus, he does not disagree with their accusation that he is equal to God. He disagrees with their conclusion, not the accusation. He is in disagreement with their continued blindness. So he goes to that when they say, you have blasphemed, he quotes from Psalm chapter 82. Write Psalm 82 down if you're taking notes, and you can go back and take a look at it. I wish I had time to go there, uh, but I don't think I do. Uh, in essence, what, what takes place in Psalm 82 is God calls out the judges of Israel for being men that held the position of judge but were actually fleshly, in, unjust, very partial, right? So if you had a judge in this country that you expect them to be blindfold justice, but they weren't, like if you have a lot of money, you're off the hook. If you're poor, straight to jail, Right? In Psalm 82, God's calling out the unjust judges, and he calls them little gods, lowercase g-o-d-s, because they still had the power and authority to determine the fate of another man. And when you determine the fate of another person, you're like a little god in their life, whether they like it or not. And Jesus says God used that terminology to determine uh, or to call the ancient judges of Israel, who at that time were unjust judges, Men that needed to get right with God. Men that needed to repent. And yet they still had a powerful position. 
And so Jesus, he doesn't deny, he doesn't deny at all that he's equal to God or sent from God. He denies the charge of blasphemy. He's like, I, I told the first service, it'd be like someone saying to you or I, you Christians think you're forgiven and you think you're perfect. I'd say back, the first part of your sentence is right. We do think we're forgiven. To think we're perfect, no, we do not think that. Not even for a second. We know we have trust in the one who is perfect. So Jesus says, yes, I am God. I am sent from God, but your accusation of blasphemy is untrue. There's no blasphemy here. If anything, the only blasphemy is them wanting to stone him. That's blasphemy. Verse 36, he, he knows he's sent from God. Jesus knows he is from God. He's not going to lie. Do you, do you not say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? So he knows that the Father sanctified him. He sent him. He points against to the works. He says, uh, if you do not... Um, if I do not do the works of my Father, not believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe at least the works. So he says, look, uh, if you're not going to believe my word, which so far you haven't, how can you refute the miracles themselves? How can you look at these miraculous things and believe that the prophets were of God, but that I am not exactly who I say to be? Um, I find it fascinating that Jesus quotes from Psalm 82 because it perfectly contrasts God was speaking to those unjust judges in Psalm 82 and now Jesus is speaking to the unjust Pharisees and it's like Psalm 82 has come to life in their presence. They don't Remember they didn't know they were in the parable? They were the hirelings and the strangers? They're in this story too. They're in Psalm 82. They are the unjust judges. And they don't even realize that Jesus is using a psalm that they haven't even remembered. And he's contrasting his righteous, compassionate ministry, which God required of the judges of Israel, which they were not being compassionate. They were not helping the poor and destitute. Uh, whereas Jesus fulfilled all this. And so they were like little gods with partiality and no compassion for people exactly like the Pharisees. These Pharisees were identical in nature to the judges at that time. That God was going to judge and God will judge those that represent him in an unworthy manner. But they're not moved at all. And all of this they, at the end of this it says verse 39, therefore they sought to seize him. They're not the slightest bit moved. They still are intent to seize him and kill him. But it says he escaped out of their Hand. Once again, Jesus fully removes himself. We don't know how he does it. But once again, they're grasping for air. They cannot kill him until it's his time to lay down his life. And as a faithful and persistent witness, he has planted all these seeds in Jerusalem. And then he departs and he goes. And those of you who have been to Israel a couple times, you know right there in the Jordan Valley, when you look on the other side of the Jordan River, it literally today is the country of Jordan. Back then it wasn't. It was part of Decapolis there. But he goes across um, into the uh, other region beyond the Jordan. And when it becomes known that he's left Jerusalem, it's not the religious leaders that follow him. It's not the elite. There's this group of people that are like, I think he really might be from God. I think he might really be the Son of God. I think he might really be the Messiah. I think he might really be the, the Savior of the world. And they drop everything. And brother and sister, it is worth dropping everything to go find Jesus. Amen. 
And they do. They drop everything and they go and find him on the other side of the Jordan and he keeps sharing the gospel again. And they say, John, everything that John the Baptist said, this man has fulfilled every single thing that John said. And it says, many believe in him. Many believe in him. Finally, a harvest comes out of all this hard, heart's heart, and there's this harvest that comes. And brother and sister, we might have, right now in our lifetime, a beyond the Jordan moment sooner than we think. And what I mean by that is beyond this place, beyond this time, beyond this day, beyond this month, there could be many coming to believe if we keep planting just as Jesus did. Amen? There's a beyond the Jordan coming. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we again, we just, we know that you're exactly who you say you are. You're the true and living God and you sent your only begotten son. And we are so grateful, so thankful that Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. And Lord, we pray that not only would we believe in you, but our faith and our our growth in you, our belief in you would deepen. That we'd hear your voice that much more. And Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we are your sheep and you are our shepherd. There's no one in the universe that could hold us for eternity but you. That could save us from the certainty of death and hell. And Jesus, we now put our life in your hands. But Lord, if there's any here that have never put their lives in your hands, I pray that even now they would come to the wisest decision a person could ever make. For the eternity of the soul is of far greater value and far greater importance than anything else in this world that we're looking to have security. And Lord, I pray that if there's any that you'd prick their heart, I could never convince them they need you as Savior, but you can do it as you've done it with many of us in this room. With our heads bowed. If there's even a single person, last week we had a person that said, yes, that's me. I want to give my life to Jesus. If you say, I am not his sheep, but I want to be today, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Anyone else say, I'm not his sheep. I am not in his fold. I am not in the flock of God, but I want to be washed and cleansed and sanctified. Any at all? Anybody at all? Is anyone in line? If you're hearing it, God speaking to you, you just, right now, you just call upon them and say, Lord Jesus, would you please save me, cleanse me, and forgive me of all of my sins and wash me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life for I am deciding this day to follow you, Jesus, from now and for all eternity. If anyone's done that, either here or online, if it's over, you can come talk to me. If you're online, you can send us a note at questions at calvarychapelrva.com. We would love to follow up with you in your walk of faith. But 